Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Hey, just a quick heads up that this podcast contains content that some people might find disturbing. So please take care while listening. I grew up in a very small town where, you know, you learn to be deferential to authority. You learn to believe that police and crown prosecutors are, are good people and that they do their best. And that is true most of the time. But it's also true that even good people doing their best is often not enough. From Post Media and Antica Productions, this is True Crime Byline. I'm Kathleen Goldhart. It's safe to say that the murder of Gail Miller wouldn't have made much of an impression outside Saskatchewan if authorities had put the right guy behind bars the first time around. Instead, David Milgard was locked up for 23 years for a crime he didn't commit. In 1992, the Supreme Court of Canada quashed Milgard's conviction and released him from prison. But it would be another five years before the real killer, a man named Larry Fisher, would be forced to face the truth. At Fisher's trial in 1999, the prosecution presented new DNA evidence tying him to the violent murder, and Fisher would be sentenced to life in prison, 30 years after he killed the 20-year-old Gail Miller. I met Les Perot when he was covering the Larry Fisher trial, and we've been friends ever since. Today, Les is at the Institute for Research on Public Policy, But in 1999, he was a reporter for the Saskatoon Star Phoenix. So I don't think either one of us had actually started our careers yet. But what do you remember about when David Milgard was released from prison? I just remember, even as a young journalism student and perhaps even before, I remember his mother more than I remember David Milgard. Joyce Milgard was a constant presence in the Saskatchewan media. I grew up in Saskatchewan. And uh, she was frequently in the news for different steps she was trying to take to have her son freed and to bring attention to the case, to get media interest in the case. So that's actually the first recollection I have of the case. So when did you first hear the name Larry Fisher? Well, it would have been later in that process where Joyce Milgard was trying to fight for her son's freedom, where we started to hear that there was this other suspect. And as you know, it's a very touchy subject to start naming other suspects before the police or the courts do. Uh, But it became known early on in that fight for his freedom that there was this serial rapist operating in Saskatoon around the same time as Gail Miller's murder. The big crime that he was known for in Saskatchewan was an attack on a woman in a town called North Battleford, about an hour and a half drive outside of Saskatoon. And it was a very vicious attack. It involved the woman being stabbed. 
These are things that happened to Gail Miller at the time of the original crime. And uh, I believe he spent something like 12 years in jail for that attack. So over the years, they've attempted many DNA tests on on exhibits from the case, mainly Gail Miller's clothing that had bodily secretions on them. And uh, as DNA technology advanced, they kept trying again to test the clothing to see if they could reach a definitive answer about David Milgard, but also about Larry Fisher. And the first tests required like large swaths of the clothing to produce any results and they produced inconclusive results and by the end they were able to take a stain basically test it and find the definitive result that cleared David Milgard and proved that Larry Fisher had been the one who attacked her. But this damning new evidence it wasn't enough for the Saskatoon police. Despite it being clear that David Milgard wasn't responsible that an innocent man had been jailed for a crime he didn't commit the local police force refused to reopen the case. They were not touching it. So a couple of us at the start kind of took it upon ourselves to keep tabs on Larry Fisher. And so I basically went to his neighborhood and talked to his neighbors and gave out my business card. And it was kind of funny because at the time, the whole office had one cell phone. And I had to beg my boss to let me have the cell phone so that people could call me if anything weird happened with Larry Fisher. I was hoping he would be arrested, but I also was conscious of the fact that he might flee. So it was like Thursday night, movie night. I'm in my living room with my girlfriend. We're settling in to watch some 90s romantic comedy and all of a sudden the phone rings. And it's one of the neighbors saying, Larry Fisher's loaded up a U-Haul in his van, and he told us he's going to Winnipeg. So I started driving to Calgary because I suspected he would tell his neighbors the wrong direction. And sure enough, about 45 kilometers outside of Saskatoon, I caught up to him, drove up to pass, peeked into the window to, to make sure it was him, gave him a little wave, pulled back, pulled off to the, the next town, went into the bar, phoned into the desk at about 10 o'clock at night that Larry Fisher's skipped town and they busted up the front page and put my short little dispatch from the Dalmini bar on the front page. It's kind of like the good old days of newspapers in a way, I guess. And luckily you were in a province where there was <laughs> a straight road out of town. <laughs> yeah, well, see, he's he was in the West End too of town. So like there's really only one way to get to Calgary and we all knew <laughs> he had connections in Calgary. There's also a road to Edmonton that he could have taken. And then lots of other little roads to more obscure places. And if he was a smarter criminal, I guess he would have chosen some back roads first. So then the Justice Department took the case away from the Saskatoon police in the next couple days. RCMP took it over and the Calgary police arrested him a day later. So in a way, maybe your story pushed something a little bit. Well, we put a lot of pressure on the police and the Justice Department, there's no question. Like, it was obvious that this gross injustice had taken place, this gross injustice to David Milgard, but also that this monster was allowed to continue raping women for decades after this crime. You know, it offended a lot of people, including us, to be honest, and so we were not going to let that story go until something happened. What did you find out about Larry Fisher himself? Where did he come from? Was there a sense of why he turned into such a violent, angry person? 
No, I never really got that sense. By the time we got involved in the story, his wife, his ex-wife from the 70s, had come to believe he was guilty shortly after the crime took place. She testified to this at the trial. The way she described him, he actually sounded kind of meek. And at one point, she accused him of committing the murder. And essentially, he just kind of ran away from the conversation. So he wasn't violent with his own wife. He just sounded like an antisocial loser, basically, who uh, had something broken in him at some point that led to this. But it, we never really gained great insight into that. So we never really got to know him as a creature. Why, why is he the way he was? Gail Miller was murdered in Saskatoon, but Fisher's trial would be held a couple of hours east in Yorkton. The defense wanted the case moved out of the province entirely, which had never happened in Saskatchewan courts. So the courts were reluctant to go that far, but they picked a town that was not central to the case, that was a place where he had never lived, where the Saskatoon Star Phoenix isn't distributed. Back then, those things mattered. We didn't have the internet to the extent we do now. And uh, people had still heard of the case, but it was a little less visceral for them, I guess. This is where we connected. And it was my ex-husband and you that covered this trial together. We were living in Winnipeg, so he would take off every Sunday night. You would leave Saskatoon. And so I guess there was like this group of you that sort of developed quite a nice friendship and camaraderie that happened during the trial. Well, Yorkton's not a very big town. It's, I think it's maybe 20,000 people. So there's not a ton to do. There aren't a million places to stay. And so, yeah, we there was camaraderie. And there was even camaraderie with court staff and the families and the lawyers. And it was a different time then. Like, we were there for four or five weeks, I think. So it was a big commitment. And it was still at a point where newspapers had resources for those sorts of things. And TV and radio maybe less so. So it was... Uh, sort of a small gang of print reporters that hung out and went to the same restaurant every night. <laughs> what I remember most about the trial itself is how surreal it was to finally hear from all these people who we'd read about in archives and in investigative reports from the 1980s and People that Joyce Milgard would reference all the time, like Linda Fisher, Larry Fisher's wife. And the other ones were David Milgard's friends, who were in some respects, some of them were kind of responsible for David Milgard being convicted in the first place. I, I hesitate to say that because it's their testimony that put him in jail, but these were very young people who were put under a lot of pressure by the police, who gave evidence that it turned out was false. You know, and they were sort of part of the subculture, the counterculture of the 1960s, too. So drugs were involved. They were intoxicated a lot of the time. So you had 17, 18-year-old kids basically being uh, pressured by the police to inculpate their friend. And some of them did. So then fast forward 30 years, and these are middle-aged people who uh, have had long lives, hard lives, some of them normal family lives and that sort of thing. But all of them sort of tinged with regret and trying to redress a problem that they had helped contribute to in some respects. So it was kind of a trial that was both a combination of proving Larry Fisher's guilt, but also untangling the Milgard issue? Right, because the prosecutors anticipated that the defense would rest on trying to still blame Milgard for the crime. 
it was a tough case to defend because the other part that I really remember is just how much of a foregone conclusion it felt like as we went through the process because DNA is not always a hundred percent reliable tool for conviction because people can sometimes leave hair and stuff on a scene they happened across and that sort of thing that can sort of confound it as a definitive tool. But in this case, it was semen that was left on her clothing. It was very damning evidence. So a lot of it was just about checking the boxes of who was where, when, and then bringing the scientific evidence that sort of made it all clear. Was Joyce Milgard at the trial? She was not. Once the DNA evidence emerged and the settlement, I think David Milgard got $10 million settlement from the Saskatchewan Justice Department. Once all those pieces had been put in place, Joyce Milgard really sort of faded from the headlines. She wasn't at the trial. David Milgard wasn't at the trial. They kept very quiet about it. But it wasn't over for Gail Miller's family. Gail's sister, Doreen, would sit through every single day of Larry Fisher's trial. So you interviewed Gail Miller's family, right? Yeah, so one day uh, following the trial, I got a call from them inviting me to uh, one of the family members' apartments. And we sat in a circle in their living room and drank coffee and chatted for a couple hours about Gail and about the whole process and uh, about the family and how most of them managed to get through it and live normal lives, but how their father was never quite the same and never quite recovered and... I was just really struck by the dignity of this family, that how they managed to maintain through this whole process. It must have been incredibly difficult, right? They, for 20 years at least, they believed that the man who killed their sister had been caught and was in prison. And, you know, they imagine the emotions they had towards him over all those years. And then to discover that you'd misplaced this anger for that long and to have no real bitterness and to maintain this sort of dignified presence through the whole thing from beginning to end was really, really striking to me. What did you learn about Gail? Ah, that she was a young woman who enjoyed life. And uh, I think some of us Gen Xers and younger have this image of the 1960s and the wild image we have of peace, love, dope and all that sort of thing. And Saskatoon wasn't really like that, right? Like Saskatoon was still a pretty buttoned down place in the 1960s and 70s. So, you know, she was in some respects a very conventional Saskatoon girl. She was studying to become a nurse, but at the same time, liked to go out and dated boys and did all the things that a normal 20 year old does, but still had this sort of sense of responsibility underlying it all. And And that was all cut short. Did Miller's family accept that Milgard wasn't the murderer and that it was Larry Fisher? They came to it at different paces, from what I recall, from what the family told me. There were some of them who, when the circumstantial evidence started to come out, and as they learned more about Larry Fisher in the 90s, some of them already began to have doubts and become quite convinced that probably they had the wrong guy. But there was certainly, once the DNA results came out in 97, I believe it was, there was no doubts left for any of them. And that's interesting to me that this family, who are not law enforcement experts, are not DNA scientists, can follow the trail of evidence to realize, oh, they probably have the wrong guy, and then reach the definitive conclusion with the DNA evidence that they did have the wrong guy. And meanwhile, the Saskatoon police and a lot of the people involved in the original prosecution even were still denying it all along. And even long afterwards, some of them 
remained convinced. There's one prosecutor in particular that I recall who was head of prosecutions in the 1970s and maintained that David Milgard had a role in this thing, despite all evidence to the contrary. What was that about? Well, there was weird circumstances where David Milgard was in that neighborhood. He, in fact, had spent some time in the same house as Larry Fisher. And there are still people out there who remain convinced to this day that David Milgard had something to do with it. The reason they focused on him was because he happened to be there. That's not evidence that he was involved, right? And then the verdict comes down. Tell me about that moment. It was a little bit anticlimactic, to be honest, because it just did seem like a bit of a foregone conclusion that they'd finally gotten it right. The two prosecutors on the case, Dean Sinclair and Al Johnson, they left no stone unturned. I mean, I remember thinking going in that this would be a two-week trial, like present the DNA evidence and it will be over, right? But they went back and they went through all the witnesses that were still around. They called witnesses that the defense were likely to call. They went back, they brought along everyone who had ever touched the case, essentially, and, and was still around because obviously a lot of the police and prosecutors and lawyers from the original case had passed away by then. And by the end, it was pretty clear that the defense's attempt to poke hole in the DNA evidence wasn't going to be anywhere near enough. And sure enough, the jury deliberated for most of a day, and that was about it. So Larry Fisher's found guilty. Tell me what happens to him. Well, he got life in prison. He did die in prison. Passed away a number of years ago in jail. Did he ever admit his guilt? Uh, no, not that I know of. But this is not a talkative, insightful person. Larry Fisher, to me, has always struck me as a guy who is just driven by hormones and nothing else. Had no mental capacity to analyze his behavior or his urges or his impulses or to control them. He was clearly a guy who was afraid of his wife. A little man who lived in fear and followed his sexual urges unrestrained by anything that keeps the rest of the world civilized. Sort of the purest form of id, I guess. Like, I will do what will pleasure me to this stranger who's in front of me. And then when I get afraid that she might escape or tell on me, I'll stab her. And that's essentially what drove his entire life. The wrongful conviction of David Milgard would have a huge impact on this country. There would be an inquiry where the mistakes of the police and the prosecutors would become very clear. There were also books and documentaries, even a tragically hip song. While David Milgard was eventually exonerated and would get millions of dollars in compensation for the wrongful conviction, his life would be defined by this miscarriage of justice. David Milgard died in 2022 at the age of 69. And his story really did change the way some people thought about the justice system. There are three cases, Dal Marshall, Guy Paul Morin, and David Milgard that really reinforced in the public consciousness that you can't always rely on the justice system. You can't rely on police, prosecutors, defense lawyers, judges, juries to always get it right, that mistakes are made. And I think now there's more 
people are willing to entertain the idea that these wrongful convictions happen. And it also reinforces the importance of a media and journalists because it was journalists who were constantly pressuring on all of these cases for the government to relook. I mean, if the journalists weren't pushing, who knows where this would be. Definitely have a key piece to play in it. But in Milgard's case, Joyce was a force of nature. And the thing that haunts me about it is how many guys out there who've been wrongly convicted have a Joyce in their court? And the answer is almost none of them. But Joyce knew, and not to take away from Joyce, but she knew she needed the media to amplify her fight. Absolutely. No, that's right. You know, I think about this a lot because I spent five years at the Star Phoenix right at the beginning of my career. And we, when I was at the Star Phoenix, it was a force in the community, you know. And I think what we're seeing across the country is those city newspapers that had newsrooms that were three times bigger than anything anyone has now. They have a sort of institutional heft that I think people don't realize they're losing in their communities. There's a whole uh, infrastructure there that's really faded, and I think we're poorer for it. The 90s weren't exactly a golden age for Saskatchewan's justice system. Around the time that Milgard was released from prison, there was a satanic panic scandal that resulted in a flurry of wrongful convictions. And as the Larry Fisher trial was ending, there were calls to investigate the suspicious freezing deaths of Indigenous men on the outskirts of Saskatoon. And, you know, by the end, I remember one evening around the time of the freezing deaths where the police chief came marching into our office and into the editor-in-chief's office, and then they went to the publisher's office and essentially accused us of trying to uh, destroy the Saskatoon police and cause race riots in the city and all this sort of thing. And the editor at the time, Steve Gibb, and uh, the publisher, Lyle Sinkowitz, you know, these guys were small-town editors and small-town publisher of a small-town newspaper. I mean, Saskatoon's a big city in Saskatchewan, but it's, it's a town where everybody knows each other and certainly all the people in positions of power know each other and they go to the same events and they see each other all the time. And, you know, I was a very young reporter and I remember when I started the paper, I didn't find them aggressive enough and I found that they're sometimes a little too conservative and cautious for my taste. And when I look back, it's amazing the work that they allowed us to do on these situations that put them in direct conflict with the fathers. And I use that term intentionally because it was all men who ran everything in the 90s in Saskatoon. And you realize that like, it actually took a lot of guts for them to allow this newspaper to work the way it did at that time. How about you as a journalist, Les? How did this, the Larry Fisher case, even the Milgard sort of knowledge, or how did it inform the way you did your job? So I'm from a small town in Saskatchewan. I was born in Winnipeg, but I, I grew up in a very small town where, you know, you learn to be deferential to authority. You learn to believe that police and people like Crown prosecutors are are good people and that they do their best. And that is true most of the time. And it's also true that even good people doing their best is often not enough. So what I learned from this was I learned to not trust the police. And I learned to not always trust the crown when they're making a case against someone, that it's important to question these things. It's important to listen to defense lawyers. And it's important to never take everything they say at face value because they're wrong. 
Sometimes they're maliciously wrong. More often, they're just wrong because they've made mistakes. They're humans who focus on the wrong things and get obsessed with a certain track of thinking and have a hard time getting off that track. And then these institutions have powerful instincts to protect themselves. I remember one of the prosecutors involved in this case years later actually said in an interview with one of my colleagues that it didn't even matter if David Milgard was guilty or not. What mattered is that the system be protected. And that's just a perfect illustration of how your mistakes can be compounded by your belief in your institution and then you end up in a wrong place and we all end up in the wrong place. And the system that's supposed to protect us is just protecting itself and not doing anything for society. In the end, 100% the Saskatchewan justice system and the Saskatoon police departments were protecting themselves. Byline is produced and mixed by Mitchell Stewart and hosted by me, Kathleen Goldhar. Our associate producer is Emily Morantz. The executive producers at Post Media are Andrea Hill, Chris Gallipo, and Erica Tustin. Stuart Cox is the president of Antigua. Special thanks to Aaron Valwa, the vice president, digital strategy for Post Media.